Hello and welcome to The Wound Doctors, a podcast series dedicated to the study and improved treatment of wounds. These episodes are brought to you by Convitec, pioneering trusted medical solutions to improve the lives they touch. Rod Murray's my name and I'm joined as always on this audio adventure today by my co-host Dr. Francis Henshaw. And Dr. Fran, you've done it again. We've got another podiatrist in the hot seat today, but this guest is beaming in from overseas and with quite the tale to tell. Would you mind filling the listeners in on the name, rank and serial number of our guest today and give us an inkling of what it is that we're going to be talking about? Oh, Rod, I'm super excited today. So I don't know if you remember a few uh, months ago, we had a, a guy called Tyson on. He was a podiatrist who hated wounds. That's and he right. said, you've got to speak to Emily Howarth, who's the clinical lead for podiatry in Swansea in Wales. And she actually has arrived in Swansea via Ireland, which is why she doesn't sound like a Welsh person. <laughs> but welcome, Emily. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. It's early morning here in Wales at the moment, um, so I think it's your evening time there in Sydney, isn't it's it? The cocktail for our, yeah. you might not have noticed, Emily, but it's the cocktail for <laughs> hour for us, yes. Indeed. That's exactly right. <laughs> and when I got talking to Emily, I was like, my goodness, we could just make about 10 podcasts because you've had so many interesting things that you've been up to, Emily, but one of them in particular piqued my interest because I think it's something that we haven't really highlighted on this show. So we bang on lots and lots about wounds and we talk about, you know, how to care for them and and the trouble in hospitals. But there's one particular set of people that are absolutely disadvantaged and probably get a disproportionate amount of of wounds. And uh, one of these sets of people are actually people who are homeless. Now, you've got a bit of experience of working with homeless people. How on earth did you get into that, Emily? Uh, I do. Um, It started off in Ireland. And um, I suppose a friend of mine or a colleague of mine got into a situation where they were homeless themselves. So this kind of flagged up. It was a world to me that I luckily didn't have any experience in. Um, and so in my kind of helping of that person, trying to get them um, uh, home and things, I started uh, realizing how absolutely difficult the process is to try and get somebody a house or a home, um, the basic human requirement that we all need. Um, and we eventually succeeded through but the amount of paperwork involved, the amount of kind of um, difficult systems in place to prevent this from happening was huge. So it gave me an insight into, one, how difficult it is for people who are rough sleepers who are homeless, and um, two, gave me my my first interest into helping these kind of individuals as well and this community. And I imagine that's quite confronting, particularly for somebody in the medical profession. You would go through most of your life unlikely to encounter somebody who's homeless unless they happen to be a patient for some reason. I've never known anybody who became homeless, and I imagine it must open up a world That, as you've already said, you didn't even know existed. The really simple basic stuff, isn't it? Just things like clothing, underwear, socks, uh, a place to to live is one. But all of those little things, the ability to brush teeth, hygiene, personal hygiene and those sorts of things. It's an extraordinary world, isn't it? It absolutely is. And if you think we are all just one paycheck and a life Mm. trauma away from being in that same position. Yeah. I always stop there if I talk about this because it's absolutely true. Yeah. If you, if we take, for example, the uh, center I work with, um, they have a harm reduction service, which is an absolutely incredible service, which is open 24 hours a day for anybody to walk in for needle exchange. 
they got about 50 people a day coming into this service, particularly in, in Cardiff. And I think a third of those coming in are from a care system. So a child care system. Um, 85% have a substance abuse addiction and about 60% have, has spent time in prison. Wow. So statistics like this, majority of them, 95%, nearly all of them have a mental health issue or suffer from depression or have been hospitalized for this at, any, at some stage kind of thing. So you kind of listening to those statistics, you kind of wonder how, how they've managed to survive so long, you know, um, and I work with a, a center in Cardiff called the Hugger Center. And the Hugger Center is quite unique in that it is completely inclusive. So the Hugger take in people which have been thrown out of other organizations or other charities. Um, they, ha- they don't judge whatsoever. They're always open and they never say no. So anybody and everybody can come into the Huggard Centre, no matter what state you are in, no matter what state of addiction you are in, um, whether you've just um, shot up or not, um, you're, you can go in, which I think was incredible. And this is why I chose them to volunteer my services as a wound podiatrist to them. That is quite um, exceptional, isn't it? Because a lot of places, um, unfortunately, do have rules in place. And I think the rules are in place just because they don't have the capacity to, to cope with everybody. But of course, then the, the people who are probably the most challenging actually often get missed out, don't they? And often the ones who need, absolutely, need, absolutely. need the most um, help. And the places I've volunteered to before, um, in order to get a bed that night or to get onto the floor, onto a mattress that night, because obviously they're all oversubscribed completely, um, you had to be clean or you had to have not taken a substance um, prior to coming in. And if you're talking about addiction and if you understand addiction, it's impossible. Absolutely. So another thing that we know about people who are homeless is that they're very disproportionately affected with wounds, which is something that at face value might not seem like their biggest problem in the world, but they do have some dreadful wounds. Can you tell us about what you've encountered? Yeah, so we I run a Saturday clinic about every two weeks um, for four hours on a voluntary service. And I have my my co-friendly guy, Dave, with me. Um, he's one of the um, uh, security guys. He stays with me and brings it and he knows everybody in the unit as well. So whoever's in there that day, um, they'll try and encourage to come into me. Um, so wounds we're seeing at the moment are, are horrendous. So uh, it can vary greatly from things like trench foot, to frostbite and gangrene and necrosis, um, to needle entry wounds, which is like if the vein has collapsed, they might try the foot or ankle in order to inject. Um, and, um, and these notoriously get infected. So a lot of the time you're seeing a lot of infections, a lot of small wound infections from needle entry, uh, neuro- neuropathic and vascular ulceration. Um, so my background is obviously in limb salvage and high risk. And so, and I'm used to having a full MD team um, with me and every support and admission needed, microbiology, x-rays, MRI, the lot. On, on. When you're here in the um, in the clinic, you have nothing. You have absolutely nothing. So you're trying to deal with these chronic complex wounds um, with no backup and no um, diagnostics whatsoever. Emily? So it's a huge thing. Did, did you say gangrene? I'm a layperson. That just screams. Did you say gangrene? People with gangrene? 
Yes, absolutely. Gangrene is a, a kind of a, a sort of a lay term for necrosis. Um, so uh, frostbite can cause necrosis or gangrene. Um, infection on a, on a toe or a digit. If the infection swells the toe up so much, it's going to block capillary access, and then that forms necrosis or gangrene as well. And, and what happens to those people who don't have access to regular medical? And I imagine that we'll come to this as well. I imagine the one of the things that happens, you get to see them once, you may never see them again. That's not treatment, Absolutely. is it? <laughs> That's not treatment. As part of the main challenge of dealing with this community is building up that trust and rapport. Um, and a lot of them have, have got major mistrust issues, obviously, from background and being imprisoned and things. And um, they're, they're very traumatic, complex lives that these people live uh, on a daily basis. Um, so building up that trust is vital. And then two um hoping that they will come back to you. What somebody might be there that day and they've gone um the next day. So I've got a gentleman I saw two weeks ago, um massive, horrible, big heel ulcer. Um and he had got that by um he thought he was doing the right thing and he bleached his foot. So he put his foot in bleach. He's a neuropathic diabetic. He's not on meds. Um they have, he couldn't tell me why he wasn't on metformin at the moment, but he wasn't. So his HbA1c was likely totally out of control. Um, it's a, it's a chaotic lifestyle. So trying to get him into the system, into a, a health system where he can see a medic, where he can see the diabetes specialist nurse. Um, he's no other interest apart from where he can get his next, um, uh, drug, drug, yeah. um, substance. And this is, I mean, this is quite a typical thing, isn't it? Someone who's, got diabetes and doesn't take their medication doesn't necessarily feel any worse for it especially when you've got the background of drug abuse which probably trumps everything in terms of not feeling too good they can't feel their feet and then they try and do something which at face value is cleaning them up using bleach and and they do a a nasty injury to themselves but it's very easy to say well, you can send them to a hospital where they'll get looked after. But I remember when we set up a, a homeless clinic in a, a refuge in Sydney, we did this through Western Sydney University. Most of the people that came to the clinic came into that clinic because they were in an environment where they felt safe, which is exactly what you're describing, Emily, because in Australia, for example, you could go to your GP and you could get a referral and you could go and see a private podiatrist. But nobody who's homeless, you know, who's looking shabby, they might be a bit smelly, they're not going to make an appointment, go and sit in some bright, shiny office with a load of middle class, middle aged people. They, they're just not going to do it. So I think it's really important to say we need to go to them. Proactively. Uh, Emily, oh, absolutely. Uh, and in this environment, obviously, because it's all inclusive, um, the centre, um, we offer food, showers, they have a laundry access, um, they have hairdressers coming in, um, they have their um, harm reduction service. So um, anybody then who, who has an inkling of 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 behavioural change that they wish to to change behaviour, um, everything's opened up for them completely. So to try and help and set into detox systems and things like that, um, because it's so challenging trying to get people in. Um, and I don't even know this gentleman. I'm going back there on this Saturday whether he'll be there. Um, I've sent numerous emails in the past week trying to locate him um, and try and get him into a system uh, where he can get antibiotics if he needs to uh, and and a nurse in between kind of thing to do the stressing before I see him again. And the other problem is if you give out 
antibiotics or, or, or meds, very likely they're being sold on the street mm. and they're not taking them themselves either. So that's another challenge um, to, to deal with also. Yeah, so the challenges of getting people in is one thing, but I've gone one step further and I am now going to go out with the outreach team on the streets with a little wound pack on my back um, to go and meet people on the streets where they are and um, and go out with the outreach and see if, if I can treat wounds actually on onto the street onto the street. We call this street fleet. Uh, we haven't started this yet. It's something that the centre are looking into for security reasons, obviously, um, but they're open to all of this. So I think I've got a link now with the outreach where we're going to do this and go out on the streets with them. That's night. such a great idea. Okay. There was someone who, um, a, a guy called Dr. Noor, um, who won Australian of the Year a couple of years ago. He set up this thing called Streetside Medics. A little bit more sophisticated. They have a little bus that they go with. I think they've got a bit more than a backpack. But you really have to go to where the people are. And I remember um, talking to somebody who was looking after uh, the physical activity of homeless people. And she did an experiment. It was quite biased. But what she did is she gave homeless people pedometers to measure how many steps they do per day. Now, the reason it was biased is that she could only give them to people that would bring them back and not sell them, which really limited, you know, the the sample size and uh, that introduced a lot of bias into this small piece of research. But the upshot of it was they were walking miles. They were doing, I think, close to 20,000 steps and and more sometimes. And, you know, I look at someone like me and I'm desperately trying to get 10,000 steps. Steps a day, and I rarely manage it. So they're inherently vulnerable to foot problems because they've probably got shocking footwear and they walk a long ways. So, is there anything that can be done in your um, shelter to actually help people to get footwear and access to socks and things like that? Absolutely. So, I do a fundraiser, a kind of uh, Emily's sock call, I call it, um, every winter. Um, and I just put it out on my own personal social media pages. Um, and, uh, and I, it's amazing what I get offered. So I get boxes and boxes of socks and footwear trainers because we're always looking for size 10, 12 trainers for men. Um, and I get boxes and boxes and they go into my home or my garage and my kids go demented because they go, mom, we can't move because of socks. Um, and then eventually over the time, I, I whittle those out to the, uh, the centers. Um, if we don't use them in the Huggards, they're open to anybody else to use. There's also a charity in the UK called Forgotten Feet, um, which was started by a podiatrist and, um, they will, they also, um, do drives for socks and shoes and equipment and things. And they've been superb in supporting me, um, and providing equipment as well. So it's, we're very lucky. Everybody who comes into me leaves with, um, a, pair of clean socks that I put on them myself because I think it's a humbling thing to do to somebody is put somebody's socks on and a lot of the time they've never had touch like that before um especially because feet are a bit of an intimate okay. part of the body kind of thing so sure. a lot of people are kind of happy about showing their feet so um putting somebody's socks on at the end of a treatment or whatever is a kind of bonding i think between us um, and hoping to build that trust and rapport um, and they leave with as many socks as they need um, and a new pair of trainers as well wow. what i find is constantly they're in trainers which are like two sizes too small um which is obviously going to cause lots of blistering and friction and, and ulceration and things like that so when they leave me um at least they have that they're in that position and i'm hoping that as the word goes out on the street 
we'll get more and more people coming in and they'll know me as like the foot lady or the sock lady. Um, so it's fine. It's not very glamorous, but I'm okay with that. Um, and, and get them more, uh, more people coming in to the, to the clinic. Better than being At the moment, we could be seeing a range from five to 12 people, um, uh, arriving at, uh, every Saturday that we do it, which is good, which is great. Did, if I'm not mistaken, I, I'd have to go back to my Catholic days. Did Jesus not wash people's feet as a sort of an act of humility? That was. Uh, I think the Pope does it at does Easter, it? doesn't he? And it is one of those things that is, is really considered to be very kind of humbling. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, indeed. I'm thinking, Emily, as you're talking, and I can hear in your voice from time to time that you're getting sort of quite emotional about this. Humans' capacity for cruelty, even without malice, which I think in the case of homelessness is true, is extraordinary, isn't it? We've all seen homeless people. It's a helpless feeling. It shouldn't be something we're helpless about. It is insane that in 2023, in rich Western nations like Australia and the UK, that there are people who can't get access to the most basic of services. And yet, there are others who actively campaign to stop them from getting that access, don't they? Because this this belief that it's the person's fault themselves, they're the ones choosing to take the drugs. It's a complex issue. But have you got any thoughts about some of that? Wounds are obviously only one medical issue for people who are homeless. And and despite the grotesque things that you've described, they may not even be the most serious health issues confronting some of these people. Have you had any thoughts from being on the other side and seeing it? I think those of us who've never encountered homelessness from that other side, I think the same is true of prisons, we never think about it. So there's no malice, but there's a real cruelty in just allowing that to be swept under the rug, isn't there? Huge. And a lot of this is our own bias and prejudice from ourselves. And um, you have to remind yourself constantly to be um, to have no judgment whatsoever. The stories people tell you are unbelievable um, and they haunt me. Probably a reason why I keep going back, but um, they haunt me. And if you, as I said before, you're only one paycheck and a trauma away from being the same position. I firmly believe that you absolutely are. These people come from all sorts of backgrounds. Your bias or prejudice may think, oh, this is somebody who's grown up in a terrible household and had abuse or uh, and then gone into drugs. A lot of the people don't get into drugs until after they are homeless. Um, these are people who are lawyers, people who are doctors. Um, they come from all walks of life, all walks of life, and through one issue or another, it's usually a trauma in their life. Um, they've had a, a mini mental health issue what, what we all have had at times in our life where everything's gone wrong or uh, relationships have broken down or a job has gone and you don't have that family or friends to support you and um, then you're on your own and this is the kind of thing that happens and you end up on the street and many of them will question to go i've no idea how i've ended up like this i had a house i had a relationship um my wife left me um i lost the house you have one little blip in your life is all you need to be able to end up um, in this situation. And I remind myself how lucky I am every time um, I, I go there. I had a lady in the other day um, and she was um, she was in a domestic, domestic abuse situation uh, and ended up on the streets homeless um, in her 50s. And she is a, a financial accountant with or was a financial accountant with a management firm. Um, like highly, one of the high top four accountancy firms. Uh, and there she is with me in a homeless situation and she cried. Um, and I just held her. Um, and we just hugged and I sorted her foot pain out and she left with her socks and trainers. And after that, you're waiting for the next one to come in. You're not quite ready then because you've just had all this kind of trauma and information to you. And I'll just say, I need a minute. Um, 
give me a minute and then the next one comes in with equally as distressing a um a story uh, and things and people go why do you do this and i said i get more out of this myself personally than i can give um really um and if i if you can help that one person and make them smile leaving the door make their foot uh, their wound care a bit better or um or reduce any sort of foot and ankle issues then um i think you've got, done a good job it's kind of it's what you've got to give isn't it is podiatry for other people it might be a different set of skills that they can bring to give but it's that giving dr friend despite your hard as nails exterior i think you have some experience in this area too do you not yeah well when i was a, a rookie podiatrist in london I got assigned the homeless clinic and it worked out of a church hall. And it was quite confronting because I was literally 22 years old and six months graduated. And I remember one day, um, the, the, tra- the trauma stories, Emily, absolutely resonate with me. And, you know, you'd have the barrister who had something dreadful happen and would end up, you know, started drinking and then the whole of the rest of the life on spirals but I remember having a chat with somebody fixing their feet and then on my way home from work a few hours later I was walking past the tube station and the same person's begging and asked me for some money for a you know a coffee and didn't even register that it was me and it's just like I think it is one of those things that's quite confronting but it sounds like you give a lot more than podiatry treatment, but I think it's also about giving what you can give. And I think there's this lovely little story about one of the people at the uh, charity where I did some work in Sydney and, and she said to me, I've just got to go off uh, for the smoking cessation group. And I said, oh, oh, do, do homeless people like to want to give up smoking? Because most people who are homeless, you know, do like to smoke. And she said, oh, no, but, we, you know, we're trying to encourage them to stop. And I said, how long's it been going? And she was like, oh, you know, so-and-so number of years. And I said, oh, and how many people have stopped smoking? And she was like, oh, nobody yet. <laughs> but I think that, I think it's quite beautiful. It it's is. like you don't need to make things happen. You have to give people hope that they might. And I think that that gives people a lot of um, inspiration, doesn't it? Because obviously if people didn't want to give up at all, then they wouldn't, show up to the group presumably unless maybe they were giving them free biscuits or something I'd go anywhere for a free, free biscuit free cigarettes but... for everyone who turns up for a smoking <laughs> cessation course yeah but I think that's the thing is that you can't always just say well this is what we need to do this is how we're going to fix your foot and if that we're not going to get to that then we've failed it's almost we'll give you the support and it's you know people who have drug addiction never really Um, managed to kick drugs on the first pass most of the time. So I think it is this compassion that I see in these places where people are prepared to let, you know, homeless people go down the same path over and over again and, and still support them. This is a theme. There's a lot of themes bob up on this podcast. I mean, this is one of them, I think, that Dr. Franz just outlined there. There's a temptation with medicine because it's science. We spoke about this with health inequality with our Indigenous people here, didn't we? Yes. I'm a doctor, you have an illness, here's what needs to happen. It's very clinical and simple and that's the solution. Medicine actually isn't like that, is it? It's a people business, isn't it? What you're doing, yes, it's partly medical and podiatry, but it's so much more than that. In fact, the podiatry and the medical part is in some ways probably the least important bit of what you do. It's very true. And sometimes you find I, like the people come in with all sorts of like foot and ankle fractures and trauma. And, Sorry, fra- um, did you say fractures? Uh, 
Yeah, fractures, inversions, sprains. Um, it's the one guy came in, he'd been stabbed overnight. So I had a stab wound to deal with. And then the next guy, he woke up and his foot and ankle were completely swollen um, and cyanosed and big bruising and hematoma. And he thinks he may have been kicked overnight when he was sleeping. Sure. So you get all that kind of oh. aspect coming in, all the traumas coming in as well. That's <laughs> Luckily, I have a background in limb salvage high risk, but also a postgrad in sports podiatry and MSK. So all my skills are in use in these clinics completely, which is fantastic. But as you said, there's a lot more to it than just providing um, a medical service or um, or podiatric care. Uh, and it becomes almost like a counselling service as well. I'm not a counsellor. Um, I coach, and obviously I coach patients in, in motivational interviewing and behavioural change and things. But we're coming back to a really important um, point that you make, and it's about patient-centric care and having them making the decisions about their own care. So always to say, okay, this is the situation we're in. We've got this neuropathic wound. We've got this. this what do you want me to do? What? How can I help you? Um, and I let them guide me. A bit like I would in normal practice. So if a patient may decide they, that it's not the biggest thing that they want uh, there and then, because um, I've advanced first aid qualifications, they may say, I'm not really worried about my foot today. I've got an ear infection here. Can you put a plaster or can you put something on my ear? So I take off my podiatric hat and put on my first aid hat, and then I'll just give first aid to that ear. And that may be what they need that day. I'll try and help the foot as well. Um, but listening to your patients and seeing what their needs are and then responding. Um, and that's generally I don't treat them any differently than I would a, a normal patient in, um, in a more normal clinic in inverted commas as well, uh, with them leading the clinical um, pathway and management plan. Why do you do it, Emily? The easiest thing in the world to do would have been to have helped your friend who'd become homeless and gone back to the life that most of us live. I kind of fell down the yeah, sort of yeah, the rabbit hole into it. And I think once you start helping people or um knowing you can make a difference, sometimes I get disillusioned in um the health service and um the, like your limb salvage high risk people are on that cycle of amputation, remission, first ulcer, second ulcer. Um and you can ask, always question yourself, am I have I made a difference today? Have I helped people? Can I hold my head up and go to sleep tonight knowing I've um I've made 12 people in a better situation than I, I did before. And with the homeless community and working with the homeless community, you can do huge amounts of that, whereas sometimes I can't in, in main practice. So as I said, you get more out of it. I feel I've done good today by working in those clinics. I've helped people. And all five or 12 people who leave, leave with a bit more hope in their heart. They leave with obviously pain reduction, I hope, in their foot and ankle issue um, with dry socks and things. But also they leave with a hug. And a, a lot of the time, these people aren't touched. Okay, They may hug each other, but very little of the time, we, we don't hug them. So I always leave. We either do a fist bump together um, or I, um, we just do a quick hug. And they leave with that. And it's, that's human compassion and caring. And I think we should all be doing more of that to and each other. A lot of people in that situation would not get that from one end of the week to the next, would they? They don't get people showing them compassion. And I think we're well, getting opposite. it loud yeah. and clear yeah. that that's what you're doing. And I don't often get goosebumps on this <laughs> podcast. In fact, I don't think I've suffered from goosebumps on this 
podcast before, but I have them now. So, um, Rod, I want to ask you a question now. There's a question you often ask people about being a czar. Can you ask Emily? (laughs) (laughs) Emily, Fran gets upset. I won't let her be the czar of anything because the truth is she's not responsible enough. You wouldn't give her the keys to anything. (laughs) If I could make you the czar of humanity for a day, what would you do? What can be done? Uh, These are huge questions, obviously, huge issues, but – is there something that just keeps bobbing up in your mind? If we just did this, this would be so much better yes. for all of these people. It's a fantastic question, and I'm delighted you've asked it for me. Um, one of my passions is is, is is prevention, and I want to pour passion into prevention. I think if you just take away from the homeless community for the moment and look at chronic disease um, worldwide at the moment, and the World Health Organization calls causes describes health as an absence of disease. And again, you leave that just like for a second and think about what that actually is. Absence of disease. Where are we in the world with this at the moment? Nowhere. Chronic disease is the leading cause of morbidity and mortality um, worldwide. Diabetes, obviously, is part of that. Cardiovascular disease. And we are expanding and, um, and that is developing rapidly at the moment. So if I was our for, the, for um, can you give me a day or can you give me a, a week or a year? Oh, he's well, very pushy, isn't you're, she? At you're, least I put up with just having say, it for a day. You're slipping into Fran territory here. <laughs> give you an inch, you'll take. I'm going to yeah. give you a week because you hug okay. the homeless people and that's genuinely special. Yeah. <laughs> six days more okay. than I've ever had. Uh, six and a half okay. more than you'll ever get. <laughs> I would pour passion into prevention. I think we need to aim more at preventing that first ulcer in the, the diabetic foot. Um, we spend an extraordinary amount of money and pharmaceutical companies do the same in advanced dressings and producing um, amazing, wonderful dressings to try and prevent amputation. But I think we focus too much on that end of scale. Um, I spent 17, 20 years working with um, pre and post amputees within the diabetic foot world. And that's why I've moved away from that a little bit at the moment, more so so I can have a think about what is needed and where I'm best placed so I can help people more. And I think, for example, a bit radical, but if you took all the pharmaceutical money that is spent on advanced wound dressings worldwide and for a week put that into prevention, what would that do? It's a very powerful thing to think about. Probably not something that the bods at Convertech want to think <laughs> about because that's not what we're here for. And, um, you know, our mission is improving the lives of people we touch. And I think, you know, nobody at Convertech would worry if we didn't have as many people to look after because prevention had been in place. And I have to say, Rod, usually at this point, I'm itching to be the czar for the day. <laughs> but I'm in such violent agreement with Emily that I don't need to be. <laughs> You're happy to and, be the lieutenant. Yeah. And <laughs> I I did my PhD on trying to find things to heal for ulcers. And all that I really realised is that it was a hiding to nowhere. And then in my academic life, I did a lot more stuff on prevention. And, you know, there is a role of dressings in prevention, but probably not nearly so much as as other things. And I think we really need to highlight this. And I feel very privileged in this podcast that we're not here to toe the company line and start banging on about, you know, how wonderful wound dressings are. We're actually here to highlight the problems. And you have done that so articulately today. Articulately, is that a word? It is. <laughs> <laughs> well, by the time we put out the podcast, Fran, I'll make it so if we need to be. Fran makes some really good points. There. It's complicated, isn't it, Emily? Because we've got a whole – in fact, the reality is if you were to go back and start again – you would never make health an industry or a business. 
it's a foolish way to incentivize a health system, isn't it? Because in some, in, in actual fact, what it does, it incentivizes poor health. Not quite so directly, but that's the truth of it. And it's it doesn't focus on prevention. You're right. It focuses on fixing problems after they've happened, which is not to say you could prevent all problems, uh, but we're we're just a we're a funny species, humans, aren't we? We we just don't seem to make any sense. Everything you look at with the way we've organised our societies, none of it ever seems to make any sense in the end. It's quite bizarre, and it, it's been this way forever, Emily. And bleakly, there's a chance it'll be this we're way human. forever. Yeah. We're human, and humans were were messy, complex, um, chaotic individuals, basically. Um, and we know like the six lifestyle um, measures we should all be living by, and all of us um, fall by the wayside occasionally. So your six lifestyle measures being like eating more green, um, sleeping better, um, not taking substance abuse, obviously stress. Uh, reduction, et cetera, et cetera. And so all of us are guilty of, of not having those six lifestyle changes in our lives at any one stage, you know. And yes, we treat sick, sick people. Uh, we don't treat healthy people. Um, and again, I'd like this paradigm of, um, of thinking change is that we, we need to sort of start looking after our healthy people more. Um, obviously, like people, obviously the pharmaceutical companies and things that you're sort of talking about, Convotech and things. They're never going to be out of business. Don't worry. Exactly. Okay? Because we're so messy. Um, yeah. It's always going to be there. But I think with that power as well, it's great to be able to like help with health promotion and um, and, and try to have a preventative role also with it. Yeah. Oh, Rod, I, yes. think, I think we need to get Emily back again. We've got far <laughs> more to talk about, but I think she might need to get to work right now. We do. I'm just going to ask you one last thing, Emily. How often do you get to have these sorts of what are very legitimate and important conversations the way we've been talking today? Yeah, very little. Um, and I think it's really important to get out there. I, I, if you talk sort of at national conferences or international conferences, it's always usually on a clinical matter. Um, I try and bring in my prevention and my lifestyle measures and the chronic disease discussion, um, into all my talks in one way or another. Just you're hoping the power is small that you spark some interest in somebody out there. So um, in the future, might develop something more or start thinking along these lines as well, you know. Well, I reckon we've got an audience that's nodding furiously in agreement with you as, as you say that. And from I'm not a Convertech employee, I give them a huge tick for this initiative because it's opening up really important discussions that are wound adjacent, but they're not about selling more Convertech wound dressings. That's not what this is about. And I, I give them full marks for that, including Fran. We should wrap it up there, Emily, because I know you've got endless amounts of work. I think you have an actual job as well, obviously. So there's a lot for you to get on with. It has been fabulous and powerful to listen to you talk today. And we've really enjoyed it. Thank you for taking the time. You've been fantastic. No, no, thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you. Thanks so much, Emily. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Zara Emily, and thank you, Lieutenant Fran Henshaw. It's been great to have you on board. That's it until next time here on The Wound Doctors. <laughs>